Well, hey, let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Every great story features a battle between good and evil. Sometimes it's one big villain, sometimes it's an army, or in the case of my favorite movies of all time, it's an entire empire of evil. I'm referring, of course, to the Galactic Empire from Star Wars, which are some of the best movies ever made. It's not up for debate, okay? Any other Star Wars fans out there? Anybody else like that? Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, that's when the prequels came out, so I didn't really realize that they weren't as good. I, I thought they were great watching them. And then as I got a little older, I got to go back and watch the old ones, and now they got the new trilogy out, and I watched The Mandalorian. There's so much great Star Wars. And I think people love Star Wars because it perfectly encapsulates that idea of good versus evil. You've got Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader and the dark side versus the Jedi and the Rebel Alliance and, and all that's good. And the Galactic Empire is the epitome of evil. They're this huge group of ruthless leaders run by a cruel dictator. They're powerful and wealthy and murderous. They even have the evil theme music that comes on. Bomb, bomb, bomb. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you. But of course, in the end, as it should be, Good triumphs over evil. The empire is destroyed. The force is balanced again. Thank you, Luke. And I think the reason we enjoy seeing that good versus evil struggle in our favorite stories is because we know that there's something similar going on in reality. We recognize that there's a struggle between good and evil in the world today, and we, we see that battle going on around us. But typically, we just think of it in human terms like, oh, yeah, there are evil people who do evil things. And, of course, everyone thinks of themselves as being a part of the good side. But the reality is the battle of good versus evil in the world today runs much deeper and is much more pervasive than we know. When we look at the Bible, we discover that there is a spiritual battle taking place around us. There's an evil empire comprised of spiritual beings and spiritual forces that are opposed to God and his people. And whether we realize it or not, we're a part of that battle. So this morning as we continue our series through the book of Revelation, we're going to take a closer look at this evil empire and what's going to happen to it during the last days. But before we do that, let's just take a quick moment to kind of recap where we've been. If you've been here with us, you know we started this series walking through the book of Revelation back in the fall. Uh, we said from the beginning that this revelation is from Jesus to the Apostle John for the church. It started out by giving seven letters to seven first century churches that were really struggling. They were facing this Roman empire that wanted them to worship the emperor. And when they didn't, they were being persecuted. And so this letter was written to give them this message. We said this is the central message of the whole book. It's this. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. Then John begins to take us through this series of visions where he and the time will unfold. We had the seven seals and then the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls. And we see God protecting his people as the Antichrist comes to power. And most important of all, we see a sovereign God who reigns over everything. So that's where we've been so far. And we're closing in now on the end of this letter. Some of you may be very grateful for that. <laughs> we're going to knock out another two chapters. Just walk through this text and kind of get a flyover of what's going on. And then we're going to land the plane 
with three applications we can take away. So Revelation chapter 17, let's read these first seven verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Boy, that is quite something. (laughs) So what does this mean? Well, let's break it down, and we're going to get to the bottom of this, okay? But let's start with this first character that we see. Let's start with this prostitute. Why do we have such a risque image in the Bible? Well, adultery and prostitution are a theme used throughout the Bible to symbolize unfaithfulness to God. Just as God calls husbands and wives to be faithful to one another in marriage, that is a picture of how God wants us to be faithful to him. God created us to have a relationship with him and him alone, but what do we do? We sin. We go to other places. We cheat on him. We commit spiritual adultery. And that's what we're seeing here with this prostitute. Here's what else we see about this woman. We, we see that she has great power. The kings of the earth are coming to her. The people of the earth are drinking her wine. We've learned that by now these are symbols not to be taken literally. But the idea is that the whole world has fallen for this prostitute. Next, we see that she's in cahoots with Satan. She's sitting on top of the beast. This is the same beast we saw in Revelation 13. We said, who is the Antichrist? So this woman is using satanic power. She's working for him. Next, we see that she's very enticing and seductive. That's the imagery of a prostitute. She's wearing nice clothes and jewelry, and she's got this golden cup. She's wealthy and attractive, and that's why people are following her. Next, we see that she's killing Christians. She's opposed to God and the church. She's drunk with their blood. And lastly, we see in this section that she has a name written on her forehead. Here's the name, Babylon the Great. Okay, so so here we have the identity of this prostitute. She's identified as a city called Babylon. What's up with that? How is she a city and where is this city? Well, as we've done several times throughout the book, we need to go back to the Old Testament to fully understand Babylon. Most people believe Babylon got its start all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? At this time, all the people on the earth spoke the same language. They all lived in the same place. So they got together, and here's what they said in Genesis 11:4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God comes down. He shuts down their little building project and changes all their languages and sends them out around the world. Why did God do that? I mean, what's the big deal about the tower? Everybody likes a nice, tall tower. 
Well, it wasn't the tower that was the issue. It was the intention of the people. Did you see what they said? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted to build their own kingdom where they could be their own gods. And that was the epitome of pride. And so God comes down in judgment. He squashes their plans for their own good. But Babel doesn't die there. Later down the line, we see an entire nation called Babylonia built around a capital city called Babylon. It's interesting that in Hebrew, the words Babylon and Babel are the same word. We read more about this city, Babylon, in the book of Daniel. The Babylonians come to power. They take over the nation of Israel. They drag people into captivity. And their great ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, which (laughs) I can't think about Nebuchadnezzar not think about VeggieTales. I mean, it's just forever been burned in my mind about the chocolate bunny. I'm so sorry. But this is who we're talking about, this great ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what he says about his kingdom in Daniel chapter 4. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you see that? He said, the glory of my majesty, built by the power of my name. There it is again. It's this haughty, prideful, self-sufficient kingdom. And guess what happens? Same thing. God comes down. Nebuchadnezzar loses the kingdom. And he ends up eating grass. Weird punishment. Eventually, Babylon is overtaken. But by the time we get to the New Testament and the early church, we find something really interesting. At the end of Peter's, one of the disciples of Jesus, at the end of his first letter, he's given his closing greetings. And look at what he says in 1 Peter 5.13. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Hang on a second. I mean, at this point in the first century, the Old Testament Babylon's in ruins. There is no Nebuchadnezzar anymore. So what is Peter talking about? Well, in the first century church, by this point, Babylon had become a symbol. It was no longer a particular place in a particular city. It came to represent the capital city of evil, the center of all that opposes God and his church. So Babylon is a worldly system that is anti-Christ, anti-God, and anti-church. And for Peter and John in their day, they would have most clearly recognized that in Rome. Peter's talking about the church of Rome in his letter, and most believe John's talking about the same thing in Revelation. I'll explain why here in a second. But the point is we now see the identity of this prostitute. She's this powerful, attractive, wealthy center of evil that influences the world and persecutes the church. She is the evil empire of Satan. And don't miss the shock and awe of this vision. Like, this is meant to be gross and offensive and shocking. That is the point. So John responds like we would have in verse 6. He says he marvels greatly. He's blown away by what he sees, and the angel tells him, Hey, why are you so shocked? I'm going to explain to you what I see. I'll explain all this. And the rest of chapter 17 is the angel explaining to John what the vision means. And for the sake of time, let me just highlight a few of those key verses in this section. Look at uh, chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. He says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. 
So the angel's talking about the beast that the prostitute's sitting on. He says the seven heads are seven mountains and seven kings. And, and this is our biggest clue that this beast is connected in the first century to Rome because the city of Rome was famously built on how many hills? Seven, right? But what about the seven kings? Well, people, of course, have tried to say, oh, maybe it was this seven emperors or these seven world leaders, and there's a lot of opinions. But remember, the point is not to try to figure out all the details. The point is that the number seven is a number of completion, so this beast has total power and authority. The angel then goes on to explain those ten horns on the beast's head. He says they represent ten kings that will come to power in the future and work with the beast. And here's what they'll do. Look at verse 14 of chapter 17. He says, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So these kings, they're going to come to power. They're going to fight against Jesus and his church, but they will not be successful. They will be destroyed by Jesus. And then we see they actually turn on the prostitute and kill her, and it's this big self-destruction of evil. But we end this chapter with a final note on the prostitute. Look at that last verse of chapter 17, verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Again, this affirms for us that this prostitute is a city. It's not a literal place, but it's a great city that has power over all the earth. Okay, are you tracking with me so far? This means yes. This means stop talking. No, it's, I know this is a lot of information, but you got to understand this is our evil empire. And then chapter 18 shows us what's going to happen to this city called Babylon. Let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This vision makes clear. Babylon, this great city, will fall at the hands of God's judgment. She will be paid back for her sins and rebellion against God. She will drink a double portion of God's wrath. And it will happen in a single day. The rest of this chapter features three groups of people who are basically having a big funeral for Babylon. They're mourning. We see the kings of the earth who got power from her. We see the merchants who sold her all these goods and became rich. And the sailors who delivered those goods. 
And I encourage you later, not during the sermon, (laughs) to go and read the rest of chapter 18. It's really fascinating. But let me just quickly point out three themes that we see in the fall of the evil empire, Babylon. Here's the first thing we see. It's pride. Pride. Pride is what made Satan, Satan. It's said that Satan was once an angel who wanted the very throne of God, but because of his pride, he was cast down to the earth, banished from heaven, and set on a course of evil and destruction. Pride, we know, is at the root of every sin, and it's at the heart of this great godless world system we call Babylon. Did you see in verse 7, it says she glorified herself. She says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow. In other words, she's saying, I am untouchable. Nothing can happen to me. It's said that this very spirit is what led to the fall of Rome and many other great nations. The spirit of Babylon is prideful and arrogant. It is focused on self-preservation and personal gain. It is me-first attitude that leads to stepping on others to climb higher and higher. Which leads to the next theme we see, which is power. Babylon is repeatedly referred to in these chapters as Babylon the Great. Verse 3 tells us that all nations, all kings were at her disposal. She manipulates the whole earth to serve her will. And this is, makes sense. Satan craves power. Sinful men love power. So the spirit of Babylon is this powerful system that will and does dominate the world. And we're going to see this more and more as we near the end. There are going to be powerful people and powerful nations and powerful groups who do the bidding of Satan. And many people will bow down to that power. The third and last theme we see in this section is wealth. Twice we see the word luxury. When the merchants mourn her death, they lift list off all these things that they sold to her. And it's this endless list of riches. Again, for John, he would have thought of Rome. Rome and its emperors were known for being ridiculously wealthy. At one of Nero's banquets, it's recorded that just the flowers cost $100,000 in today's money. Another emperor named Vitellius was said to spend $20 million in his personal food in one year. So no doubt John connected these things in his day to Rome, but the desire for wealth goes way beyond first century Rome. You can find the spirit of Babylon in every corner of the earth as people live and breathe for money and material gain. That's why Paul warned, first Timothy, warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 16. He said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. But let's turn now to the hard question. What is Babylon today? What will it be in the future? It's easy to look back at Rome and these other ancient civilizations and see it, but where does she live today? As we've learned, people love to speculate about Revelation, so I got on Google and was kind of looking to see what people would say, and I saw people make arguments that Babylon is America or China or Israel or it's the Roman Catholic Church or it's capitalism or communism or all the other isms. But here's the reality. As we said, Babylon is not meant to point us to a literal, specific location, but it is a spiritual kingdom of satanic influence. Yes, there are some places in the world that we can look and see more of the spirit of Babylon than others, but Satan is at work everywhere. 
And I think it's clear that as we move closer and closer to the return of Christ, every nation, every group of people, the whole world will become victims to this evil empire. This empire is going to grow. It's going to become more powerful, more wealthy, and more destructive. So where do we see Babylon today? I want you to think about that. You know, what we're tempted to do when we think about Babylon is to think about it being distant from us. Like the evil's always out there. It's always the other side. Like it's always the opposite of what you believe. (laughs) If you're on the right, it's people on the left. If you're on the left, it's people on the right. And I think this is exactly what Satan wants us to do. He loves our tribalism and finger-pointing because then we become so focused on everyone else's problems that we become blind to our own. And look, I am not the world's pastor. I am your pastor. So I am less concerned with all the ways Babylon exists in the world, and I'm more concerned with the way she's manifesting herself right here. I'm concerned with the way she snakes into our churches and in our hearts. Babylon's great enemy is the church. It's us. She wants to drink our blood. So with that in mind, let me end by giving you three things really quickly we can do in light of Babylon's growing empire. Here's the first. Number one, we must identify Babylon's dominion. John and the early church, they knew where Babylon's dominion was. They didn't even have to think about it. It was obvious. Rome was Babylon. It was filled with pride and wealth and power. Its emperors and leaders demanded worship and sacrifices to them. They built statues and temples. They persecuted Christians. They wanted to be called God and Lord. But we too need to identify where this evil empire is at work around us. It's easy to look at other countries that have anti-Christian totalitarian regimes and say, oh, that's it. There's no doubt the prostitute has seduced many nations. But what about America? Does the spirit of Babylon live here too? Do we see pride here where we live? Can our sense of freedom or superiority lead to a disregard for the rest of the world? Do we see arrogance in the way we treat one another, labeling one another, slandering one another, refusing to admit when we're wrong? Do we see a history of discrimination and hatred towards others who are different than us? What about wealth? Do we see that where we live? Do we see people who profit financially off the poor? Do we see people who cheat, embezzle, steal, and exploit others for personal gain? Do we see organizations that profit off murdering the unborn? Do we see people who sell sex and violence and drugs and outrage for personal gain? Do we see a culture that promotes an American dream that measures success and happiness by the size of your house and the cost of your car? And what about power? Do we see a struggle for power in our country? Do we see politicians who make decisions based on keeping their offices rather than serving people? Do we see leaders harm the very people they're called to lead? Do we see organizations and groups that are anti-Christian while others use the name of Christ in blasphemy? And what about the church? 
Do we allow any of these things to creep in here? Do we excuse any of these things and kind of turn an eye away from it for convenience or for the world's approval or for political power? Babylon's reach is closer than we think. So we need to be honest. We need to identify Babylon's dominion. Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to flee Babylon's seduction. Verse 4, he says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. See, when we identify Babylon, that evil worldly system, we don't walk away. We run. Because one thing that's clear is Babylon is incredibly seductive. Power and wealth are intoxicating and addictive. And many people are deceived by these things. Many people have and will sell their very souls for the almighty dollar or to have a seat at the table. So often as Christians, we may not sleep with the prostitute, but we flirt with her. We toe the line. We make excuses. We cut corners. That, that can't be. As Christians, we have to flee these things. We have to be prepared to have no money, no power, and no influence if that's what it means to be faithful to Christ. We have to be prepared to die if that's what it takes to be faithful. This is one of my favorite songs. says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. We flee Babylon's seduction. But let's end on a good note. <laughs> Here's the third and last thing we do. It's to anticipate Babylon's fall. Look with me at chapter 19, these last verses, verses 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you who servants, all you who fear him, small and great. And from this point forward, I promise we will be seeing good news, okay? We are past all the awful stuff, at least in the book, because this little passage right here of celebration is heaven's cry of joy over the fall of Babylon. She is dead. She is done. The evil empire is no more. And one day, one day this will be true. One day there will be no more pride because every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. One day there will be no more wealth except for the streets of gold we will walk on and the mansions of glory we will live in. And there will be no more power except the almighty king of kings who rules over everything. There will be no more prostitute, but rather a spotless bride who will be married to Jesus forever. There will be no more beast but a lamb who is slain and who's now seated on the throne. And there will be no more Babylon, but only a city called the New Jerusalem where we will live with God forever. The evil empire will fall. And until then, 
we find our citizenship in heaven. We remain pure and holy as the bride of Christ, and we warn everyone about the judgment to come. Babylon will fall, but the people of God will stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.